Welcome to the Battlefest podcast, the place to be to catch up on all debates and discussions from the Battle of Ideas Festival 2021. The following debate is called Assisted Dying, Has Its Time Come? In the chair is Joel Cohen. Okay, as I think the, the final few drifters are uh, starting to take their seats, I'm going to um, start by introducing this session. Um, my name is Joel Cohen, uh, and I'll be your chair. Um, this session, so you know you're in the right place, is Assisted Dying Has Its Time Come? Um, it's really fortuitous that we're debating this issue in Westminster because um, there's currently a bill that will, is making its way through the House of Lords um, proposed by Baroness Meacher. And that proposes to allow assisted dying for uh, people who are terminally ill but mentally competent adults um, in their final six months of life um, to be assessed by kind of two doctors and a high court judge and then to self-administer um, a drug after 14 days. That proposal isn't explicitly about euthanasia, but in the spirit of the battle, we're not just leaving these subjects to scrutiny by politicians. This is a place for a robust, serious and mature uh, moral debate about the subject, as well as its practicalities. And we couldn't be joined by a better panel. I'm going to introduce them briefly in the order that they'll speak, but our website, of course, has a little bit more information about them for you to take a look at. Um, first, we'll hear from David Pierce, who's sitting to your right. He's Director of Fundraising and Marketing at Dignity and Dying and has been campaigning on this issue since 2012. We'll then hear from Professor Catherine Sleeman, who's the Langalaska Chair in Palliative Care at King's College London and is a consultant and researcher. Um, we'll then hear from Dr. Richard Schaefer, who's a palliative medicine consultant and since retired, having worked in South Africa and Devon. Um, he's also a former board member of Dignity in Dying and Compassion in Dying. And then finally, we'll hear from Dr. Kevin Yule, who's a professor of history at the University of Sunderland and the author of Assisted Dying, The Liberal Humanist Case Against Legalisation. Each of our speakers are going to have uh, five minutes or so to give their opening introductions. And I've got some little cards here. When I think you're very near um, the end of your final few sentences, I'm going to stick these in your face so that we can keep things to time and bring in the audience as quickly as possible. Um, I believe um, we're very grateful to have volunteers here filming this discussion so it can continue beyond just this room, but your contributions are incredibly important. So, um, without further ado, I'd be delighted to ask David to kick us off. Great. Thank you, Joel. Um, very pleased to be here, very pleased to be here in real life instead of on a screen. Uh, and I'm just going to crack on because I'm a bit scared of the old yellow cards in there. Okay, so is this an issue that time has come? Well, the truth is, it depends who you ask. If you ask the general public, the average punter in the street, the answer is yes. And it was yes 10 years ago. And it was yes 20 years ago. And in polls going back as far as 1937, all the way up to the most recent poll conducted by Dignity in Dying, which showed an overwhelming majority, 84% of the public, support assisted dying for terminally ill, mentally competent adults in the last months of life. So for the public, it's an issue that time came many years ago. The problem is, if you ask Parliament, you've got a different answer, historically at least. And uh, you could just say that's because Parliament is out of touch with the public. And you know, with MPs, I think perhaps that has been true in the past. But if you look a bit 
a bit deeper of what's gone on in Westminster and in other places like um, Australia and New Zealand, I think some uh, interesting facts start to emerge. Um, one thing worth noting is how long has Parliament in the Commons and the Lords actually spent debating this issue? So I'd like to look at two of the most recent bills, the Faulkner Bill in the Lords and the Maris Bill in the Commons, beginning in 2014 with the Faulkner Bill. We saw the House of Lords debate assisted dying uh, at its second reading, where it pressed without a division, and then two further days of debate in committee, where we saw at that stage votes in favour of progressing the bill. After that, it ran out of time. I think that point is crucial. It didn't fall on its merits, mere procedure brought it to an end. Now part of the reason it ran out of time is that over a hundred amendments were put down. Many of course were constructive and in good faith. But we also saw an attempt to filibuster, to delay the bill with process and procedure. For example, how does it improve the bill to change the word dying to the word suicide everywhere assisted dying appears in the bill? The answer is it doesn't, it just takes up time. Also to call it assisted suicide is inaccurate and frankly offensive to dying people who want to accelerate an inevitable death. It's offensive because they want to live. They want to live with what time they have left to the full. But they would also benefit from the comfort, the insurance policy of the option of an assisted death. There were many amendments still to be debated in Faulkner when a general election was called. But that was the end of the Faulkner bill because that's the end of all uh, private members bills when there's a general election, they're all finished. So let's compare that to the Maris Bill in the Commons in 2015. That bill was voted down at second reading after a mere four hours of debate. I've had longer lunches than the Commons has spent on assisted dying. You'll probably spend more time than that on Netflix this weekend. So Parliament has not put the time in that the issue deserves. And the quality of that four hours of debate, I think, is questionable. If you look back at the Hansard and the, context, uh, the content of the bill as it was written, I think a lot of what was said was a distraction. Some of it verging on nonsense, to be honest. Uh, a lot of it nothing to do with the bill. It was a tactic by opponents to talk as long as they could. And if you throw enough mud around, you can confuse almost any issue. It's interesting that subsequently MPs who voted against the bill have pretty much said as much. I know one MP who didn't really know what he'd voted against until a constituent with terminal sarcoma went to meet him and explained the reality. Not only did he change his mind, within months he wanted to table a new bill himself. So now let's compare Westminster to what has happened in other places where the law has changed more recently. In Australia and New Zealand they had many, many hours of debate ahead of changing the law. Both scrutinised the evidence sought out new evidence to uncover the reality and then thrashed out all of those issues to develop a bill that would be safe and would help dying people who were suffering. But there were also attempts to filibuster. In the Australian state of Victoria, a hundred amendments went down. So they had a full 24 hours of debate. A single Australian state spent 20 hours more on this in a single session than the House of Commons ever has. In New Zealand, they went through the entire process of debate, including two inquiries, and found time to put the finished act to a public referendum, which was duly ratified by a large majority. That's how seriously we need to take the issue here. Although it will always be a conscience issue, and rightly a free vote not whipped by any party, a neutral government has a role to play. 
and that role is to allot time for it to be fully debated. That is the key. I'm not here today to change anyone's mind because I don't need to. I know most people already support this. But if you're here today and, like me, want to see the law change, I urge you to do something about it. Write to your MP. Write to a member of the House of Lords before the debate on the 22nd of October. Dignity and Diamond will be happy to help you if you need it. But that's what we all need to do if we think this is an issue that's time has come. Because the key to resolving it is parliamentary time. Only then will we be able to address it thoroughly and reform the law so it is both safer and deals with the issue of suffering at the end of life. Thank you very much, David. Catherine. Thank you. So um, I'm a practicing clinician and academic, and over about the next five minutes, I'm going to tell you four things I know about assisted dying. First thing, this is a highly polarized debate. We know this. It's portrayed as black and white. Yes versus no. What I want to do today is highlight some of the complexity in the middle. Now, I'm not morally opposed to assisted dying. But I am very concerned about legalising assisted dying before we really understand what it means for society and the practical implications for doctors like me. So I'm not here to tell you that assisted dying is morally wrong, but I am here to persuade you that the Meacher Bill would be a mistake. The second thing I know about assisted dying is that arguments for assisted dying focus almost exclusively on autonomy, free will, self-determination, it's my right. These arguments, especially when we hear them from people who are themselves living with terminal illness, they are highly compelling. I mean, who are we to deny a dying person their choice? But the hard reality is we just don't have the autonomous right for many things. I don't even have the autonomous right to demand antibiotics when I have a sore throat. Now, that's not because of the potential for harm to me. Actually, they might help me. It's because of the potential for harm to society. So here's the third thing I know. There are many people in our society potentially at risk of being harmed by a change in the law. And I know this because I look after them in my clinical work. And here's the thing. The people I'm worried about, they are by definition lacking in autonomy. They cannot tell us that they're vulnerable. They cannot tell us that they're being coerced. If they could tell us these things, they would by definition not be at risk. Put yourself in the shoes of someone like my patients. They're old, frail, deprived. They may have fluctuating mental capacity. They certainly have good days and bad days. And they probably already feel that they're being a burden. It's hard to think of a more vulnerable population. Because whatever anyone tells you, this law will not just affect a small number of individuals. It will affect everyone living with a terminal illness who will suddenly be faced with a new question to consider. What additional pressures, external pressures, <coughs> internal pressures, would a change in the law put on these people? The Meacher Bill is being spun as a modest change. It is not. It is a massive shift that will affect all of society. Now, it may be a massive shift that we, society, decide that we want. 
But to determine that, we have to grapple with the complexities, air them, not airbrush them. So a good example of this complexity is safeguards. And this brings me on to the fourth thing I know. No safeguards will be 100% safe. It's not possible. So the question we should be grappling with in this room is how safe is safe enough for us? If we really want this, what margin of error would we find acceptable? So for example, would we accept the death of one person who doesn't want to die in order to allow the death of one person who does? Or maybe that ratio is one to 10, or maybe it's 10 to one. You tell me. Consent is an important safeguard, but clinical reality does not always align with neat boundaries. And it's in the gray areas that potential harms are going to exist. The six month rule, yes, it makes legislation more palatable for us, but it is completely flawed as a safeguard. First of all, it's arbitrary. I mean, why six months? There is nothing special about six months when it comes to terminal illness. Second, it's impossible, and I know that from more than a decade of being asked the how long have I got question. Third, most importantly, it's discriminatory. Why would we accept a law that discriminates against people with the most slowly progressive conditions? So I will sum up. The question here is not about belief in right or wrong, it's not about autonomy, it's not about what we would want. We, we shouldn't even be here, I think, to be discussing whether assisted dying is morally okay or not. What we need to discuss is the complex balance of safety and the practical implications. I'm not saying the current situation is perfect, but we have to be sure that the risk of harm of changing the law does not outweigh the risk of harm of leaving the law as it currently is. And right now, what I know is that that condition hasn't been met. Thank you. Thank you. Richard, I can pass to you. Thank you very much, Mr Chairman. I'm delighted and honoured to be part of this event today. The most compelling reason to change the law to allow assisted dying is that for a small percentage of dying people, facing dying is a nightmare of the most awful suffering. I worked for 20 odd years in a palliative care team as a consultant and hospice medical director, and during that time, I met over 20,000 dying individuals and their loved ones who taught many lessons to me, but three stand out. The first is every single one of them wanted to live and would have put themselves through pretty much anything to achieve that. The second is that palliative care, no matter how expert, can relieve all suffering. And the third, for some, there comes a point where the suffering overrides <coughs> the desire to live. John was in his 40s and dying from a cancer of his rectum. He had a large tumour in his pelvis that was causing pressure that made him feel as though he wanted to defecate all the time. He also had a persistent foul-smelling discharge from his anus, and the tumour that was growing in his abdomen had actually begun to grow through his abdominal wall around his ileostomy, which made it hard to keep an ileostomy bag on and meant that he frequently leaked feces into his clothing and bed. He was in considerable pain and hated the side effects of painkillers. 
He was a single man, the only child of a woman in her 80s, who was obviously very distressed by his illness. I sat on his bed and he held my hand and he wept. He pleaded with me to help him end his life. He could not endure any more of the pain, of the discomfort, of the indignity, of watching his mother suffer and feel so guilty, and of course worrying about the future and how much worse it was going to be. There are of course two parts to this question of assisted dying. The first is, do we agree with the concept that dying people such as John should be allowed and indeed helped to die early if they find their suffering unendurable? And if we do, what do we think the process to achieve that should be? They are related, of course, but quite distinct. The answer to the first question is often influenced by an individual's faith or religious beliefs. And I want to say to you at the outset that if you're in that category and you disagree with assisted dying, I've no desire to undermine your faith. I respect your beliefs and I ask you to respect my point of view. So what then can someone in John's predicament do now under the law besides wait to die naturally? And there are six options and really none of them are terribly satisfactory. One is to refuse all life-sustaining treatment. Secondly, you can voluntarily stop eating and drinking. Third, you could end your own life. Fourth, you can hope a doctor will help you die. Or fifth, a friend, hope a friend or a family member will help you die. Or of course, you can go to dignit pardon me, dignitas. All these options currently occur and all contain serious risks of abuse and potentially increased suffering for individuals. And all occur without particular safeguards save for the integrity of the other individuals involved. So I suggest to you that an alternative is to change the law, to give the initiative to the individual and allow assisted dying if that is the individual's choice by supplying them at their request, first of all with the information and the support, to think through all the issues and discuss their options and if they decide they want to go ahead with assisted dying after that and then have a rigorous assessment give them the means to end their own life. This is the system that has been in place in Oregon for the past 24 years. Of course the assessment process must be robust to prevent abuse, but the evidence from Oregon is that a law can be crafted, a well-safeguarded law, that allows dying people this choice without lessening the protections of abuse for them or others in the society. There has not been a single case of abuse in 24 years reported in Oregon. We do not know how many people suffer in the United Kingdom every year like this at the end of their life. Many hundreds, possibly thousands, face uncontrolled physical symptoms in the last few months of life. But no records are kept of the psychological, the social, or the existential suffering that individuals experience. In Oregon, 0.5% of all deaths are as a result of assisted dying. Extrapolate that to the United Kingdom, and we're talking about 2,000 deaths a year. That is a lot of terrible suffering. The benefits of changing the law, of course, are obvious for those people who are dying with terrible suffering. But in addition to a change in, a change in the law would give comfort to many thousands more who do not make use of it. Just knowing that there is a way out is a comfort. We see this in Oregon where many talk of the process, relatively few go ahead and make a formal request, and of those given the medication, 
only 60% use it. The other 40% die naturally, secure in the knowledge that they can choose not to suffer. And there are other benefits. Jurisdictions where the law changes, there's increasing openness in discussion, there's increasing evidence of fewer adverse bereavement reactions, and finally safeguards clearly are improved by being upfront. Assisted dying is not a failure of palliative care. We need both palliative care and assisted dying. It's not either or. Everyone needs good palliative care to ensure that they have a good, peaceful, dignified death that we all desire. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Um, the final word's going to go to Kevin from our panel for now, and I'm going to come straight out to the audience. So if you have questions you'd like to start raise and want to be uh, putting up your hands, um, I can spot you and come straight out to you and, and ask the microphone volunteers um, get ready. Kevin. Right. Uh, the only argument I really want to make, and I'm aware that most people are opposed to my particular perspective, which is in opposition to the Meacher Bill, is that assisted dying is suicide. And I think it's wrong to allow suicide for one group of people and not for everybody. And I think in general, we're trying to prevent suicide. And I think that's the, the, the right way to go about it. So what I'm not opposed to is doctors occasionally taking unofficial action uh, to end lives. I have no moral qualms about that particular situation. I am against a change in the law, and I think that's uh, the very specific uh, territory I want to battle on. So um, is assisted dying, which is, as a historian, a euphemism. Uh, when I first started talking about this subject, it was called assisted suicide. It was open about what it was. Now we have this euphemism um, of assisted dying, or in Canada, medical aid in dying. And so we need to ask, is this actually suicide? And uh, the argument runs that we can't compare the choice of somebody who makes a painful and who faces a painful and prolonged end to their life to the death of, say, a lovelorn 24-year-old. So let's look at that. First of all, in almost all legislation, in particularly Oregon, upon which the Meacher Bill is based, it is the patient who makes the final decision. It is their choice. Um, it's a free choice. So. And we need to ask, is somebody ingesting poison in Oregon with the intent to die that has been prescribed by a physician for the purpose of suicide, is that radically different in its moral uh, terms than somebody ingesting the same poison who has not been prescribed the poison for that purpose? If a doctor hands a patient a gun and the patient takes the gun and shoots himself, that's, that is definitely suicide. The patient is still the killer, but the doctor is just complicit in the killing, and I think that's uh, one way to look at it. Uh, one of the examples that's brought up by people who are in favor of changing the law on assisted suicide is the example of the people jumping out of the Twin Towers in, uh, in Manhattan when, when in 2001. So this is an example used to say that assisted dying is not suicide, just as those jumping from the tower to avoid burning were not suicides. Neither are those who face dying of a painful disease suicidal. Uh, they're both facing grim prospects. But I think this doesn't work, this example, on several levels. First of all, um, I think 
you know, who do we attribute that killing to? I would attribute the killing in the Twin Towers to terrorists. Uh, and I think it would be uh, obscene to say that the death was their choice. But with assisted dying, responsibility for the decision rests solely with the patient. Um, as long, well, I say solely, actually, a lot of the decision rests with the doctor as well. Doctors are gatekeepers in this kind of instance, so it's not entirely um, down to the patient, but it's certainly uh, their choice, and as so long as it is, as, is, as it is voluntary. So I don't think that stands, that particular thing stands, uh, that example that I've just given you stands, because I think responsibility for somebody's death has to be assigned, and I don't think you can assign it in the same way uh, when the terrorists were doing the killing at that stage. Okay, fourth point, if we look at the characteristics of and reasons why assisted dying occurs, it's not that diff different from suicide. So for instance, in 93 to 95% of suicides, uh, suicide attempts, according to different study, it varies, but it's around that kind of number, um, 93 to 95% of suicide attempts do not complete within five years. Of the eight patients in Oregon who survived the, in a, an attempted assisted death, none reattempted it. And that shows you that there's some sort of similarity there. Also, um, reasons for assisted dying are existential rather than strictly to do with pain. Just as with other suicides, hopelessness is the key factor. None of these are uh, substantially different than suicide. Pain, or even concern with it, is not even in the top five reasons why people opt for assisted suicides in Oregon. Um, the, the why do they do it? First, loss of ability to participate in enjoyable activities. Second, loss of autonomy. Third, loss of dignity. Fourth, being a burden on others. And fifth, loss of control of bodily functions. And in fact, what you tend to find in places where it's been legalized, there is uh, other ex existential reasons creeping in. Canada is uh, legalized uh, euthanasia and assisted dying in 2016. And in 2019, 771 Canadians asked to be lethally injected in, uh, because they were lonely. That was the, the number one um, thing put up there. So, if we look at all of the countries where assisted suicide is legal throughout, um, the suicidal have, have become part of the entire story, and they are in there. So with, with, for instance, the Netherlands or Belgium, it is increasingly people with mental health difficulties who are coming up, and they are making a, a larger and larger percentage of those who are requesting euthanasia. So, I mean, just to finish, I know uh, David is, will find this uh, uh, very uh, offensive, but I do think that you can't say that this isn't suicide. You have to admit that this is suicide. And then what we're doing is we're drawing a line, arbitrarily as Catherine said, between those who should be allowed, who, who we can not only just approve of their suicides, but offer to give them a push off the ledge, and those whose suicides we strenuously strenuously prevent and I think that is uh, the important part of this matter. Thank you very much Kevin. Okay I'm now going to uh, looking at our audience to see who would like to um, pose questions 
uh, to our to our panelists first. I wanted to say uh, you gave a lot about why it is similar to suicide, but you didn't justify why suicide should be illegal. And in this country, we had suicide be illegal for really quite a long time. What the evidence shows is that making it illegal doesn't reduce people's likelihood of committing suicide. And what it does do is that it takes people who have tried to commit suicide and then put them through the criminal justice system. And that is even worse for their mental health because now they have to stand in front of a judge and justify why they are trying to commit suicide. So I just wanted to ask, why do you think it is that we should keep suicide illegal? Thank you. And then if the person at the back could give the mic to the person with the hand here. Can I see the other hands as well? A uh, couple of, uh, of questions. Um, the first one is, uh, I'm wondering why the panel think that the discussion about uh, assisted dying or, or suicide has become so polarised mm -hmm. and so political. And I'm raising that question because I think it's a problem in that it takes away attention from the plight of the individual um, and the very private nature of the circumstances that, that they're in and it's become something that is seen as, as something that is very contested and related to that is um, being very sympathetic to the point that Kevin makes about the problems of the law and the legal distinctions in this what do the panel think about the question of decriminalizing assisted dying rather than the law being brought in to regulate it so that it's seen as something that is very private and a moral question that somebody decides for themselves rather than regulated by any law? Thank you. Hands again. Thank you. Uh, Chris. Uh, citing the Oregon example, uh, you say that there are loads of safeguards against abuse. So would you mind detailing, uh, first of all, what these safeguards are? And secondly, you claim that uh, in the whole 24 years this law has been in place, there's not been a single case of abuse recorded. For the de purpose of recording, how is abuse defined? And uh, how much uh, abuse goes unrecorded, do you reckon? Thank you. And then uh, next guy with the mic. Yeah, thank you for your questions. I think firstly, I come at this from a medical perspective. So I work as a doctor and as an ethicist at university. I think we do need to be clear that this is assisted suicide. One of the advocates for it on the panel referred to this as giving the patient the means to end their own life. If that's not assisted suicide, it's difficult to say what it is. Um, the second thing I want to say is that it's very difficult to see how this can be regulated and how a moderate law can be kept. So I'd like to ask the advocates for assisted suicide Suppose this bill got through, would you support an extension of this bill to allow anyone who felt their life was intolerable to end their life with the help of a doctor? If yes, then how can you say that this bill is a moderate one which won't lead to further change? If no, why not? Because those people presumably have a right to assisted suicide too. My question is, I recently lost two grandparents, both to dementia. And I get that this is only, the proposed bill is only directed towards those people who can consent themselves to do it. But to be honest, I, having gone through that process, saw two grandparents who had no, no purpose in life anymore. They were being kept alive for our family's own conscience and a societal conscience to keep them alive. But they themselves, my grandmother was being carried into a car every time she came to visit. And so for that point, why... I'm not saying I agree or disagree, that's why I'm here at the debate today, but I find it interesting that we are drawing the line at physical um, harms, and rather than looking at someone who really has, 
is not able to contribute to society anymore and, in, and is not able to take any fulfillment from life, but is being kept alive for our, I, I think, for our own conscience rather than anything that they would take benefit from life. Yeah, everyone talks about the pain of the patient. What about the pain of the families of having to watch someone starve to death for 28 days because they've refused service? And that mental torture, the pain, the psychological damage that does to their loved ones. Thank you. Um, David and Richard, um, do you want to start us off? Who would like to, to pick up one of the questions that have been put to <coughs> your positions? Yeah, there's a lot of questions. It's quite difficult to choose. I think they're all um, perfectly valid. Um, I, I think I picked one of the ones earlier on because I think that's just fairest, uh, which was wh why is it, it polarised? Uh, but then I, th I think you also asked about whether it could be decriminalised and, and not regulated. Um, I think the reason it's polarised is because, um, well, to be honest, I think it suits people who are opposed to assisted dying to make it look as polarised as possible, because it makes it look as toxic as possible for a politician to do anything about it. And I said earlier that politicians were out of touch with the public, and um, we've done some research that kind of well showed that. Um, politicians, whether they support or oppose assisted dying, all tend to think that their constituents agree with them. But if you look at the polling, their constituents don't agree with them. But the reason they think it's that polarised or, or, that, or that people agree with them is because of their mailbags. And just as we're telling all of our supporters to write to their MP and to the Lord saying, it's time that we did something about this, so are the opponents. Large networks of, of uh, churches and evangelical Christians are also spreading similar messages to the contrary. And it... When it, and also, there's also the fact the way that you do a, a debate like this, for fairness, it's 50-50. If you ever discuss anything on the BBC, the way that they measure balance is you get that amount of time and you get that amount of time. And so it's inherent that the way we're constructing these discussions is leading to the appearance of polarisation, when in fact, amongst the general public, across pretty much all demographics and faiths and conservative voters and Brexit supporters and Remainers, there's huge support for this reform to go through. It's just that it appears polarised when it's not. Uh, on the question of whether you could decriminalise it and not regulate it, I'm, I just, I'm not sure how that could be done and it'd be safer than what we have now or safer than what's proposed in a bill. So I, I think perhaps that could be more dangerous than change or, or doing nothing, perhaps. Richard. Um, thank you. I'd, I'd like to, to try to answer two questions. First of all, the issue about suicide. Suicide is a terrible tragedy. <coughs> suicide is done in a moment of unimaginable mental turmoil and distress. Assisted dying is something completely different. It requires thought and discussion and planning. Of course, that doesn't make it any less sad or distressing because nobody wants to die. We all want to live. But as I tried to say when I was giving my presentation, for some there is a tipping point where the suffering is such that it overrides their desire to live. I agree with Catherine that the safeguards are a very important issue and I think we should spend more time talking about them. The safeguards that are built into the Meacher Bill are that the person has to be adult, has to be resident in the United Kingdom, has to have shown a 
persistent wish for this to, to occur, pardon me, has to make a written request, has to be mentally competent and have a, a, a diagnosis of a terminal illness with a relatively short prognosis, and we can talk about that, it's, a, it's an interesting point. The thing about changing the law is that you have to be pragmatic. You cannot just get go for changing the law for everybody first step, because pol politicians just can't make that kind of decision. I've seen that happen over the 20 years that I've been involved in this debate. I can't say to the questioner about the Oregon situation how much unrecorded abuse occurs, clearly, because it's unrecorded. But are we seriously suggesting that the doctors and the nurses and the families of those people in Oregon who choose this way of dying would not report, would not express concerns if they even thought there was pressure, undue pressure being applied to their loved one? Most families don't want the person to have assisted dying, would much rather their relative go on living. There are two very powerful organizations in Oregon that oppose the bill, the Catholic Church and the Hospice Association. And believe me, if there was any hint of abuse, they would have that before the courts for consideration. Unfortunately, I don't believe we can ever make anything where humans are involved completely watertight. But it isn't watertight now. We don't know how many people are dying with those six options that I gave you and under what circumstances. And if we have this kind of legislation, and I can hear the argument that the lady made for wanting a um, it to be a private issue but the fact of the matter is that people are vulnerable and can be abused and we need some sort of system some sort of process and that's why I tried to divide the two questions at the beginning are we agreed with the concept and if we are what's the process thank you um, Kevin Catherine um, Interesting questions. Thank you for those. First of all, suicide, should it be illegal? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't think it should be illegal. I think that I'm a bit of a fan of the 1961 Suicide Act. I think it gets the balance right, which is to keep the sort of commitment of society to protect its members with a, a uh, sort of no, uh, not prosecuting people for suicidal wishes. I think it's, it's absolutely right. And I think the way I look at what our attitude towards suicide should be, because in some ways you could say libertarian, oh, anybody should be able to commit suicide at any time. But I think we as a society protect our members. And I think it's important that we, when we're walking past, for instance, a lake and you see somebody drowning, you don't assess what that person's value in their life is. You simply go and you save that person and assume that they wish to live. If I see somebody who's standing on a ledge, I will assume that if I bring them down, the chances are that they will be alive in five years and that that additional time is valuable and not just to them but to me. And uh, you know, we, I think that's our fundamental attitude towards suicide is that we strenuously try and prevent suicides. And this is what 
really does worry me about this uh, moral precept that I think uh, passing this legislation would be. So that uh, interesting question. In terms of decriminalizing uh, assisted suicide, in some ways I think it already is decriminalized. There's nobody languishing in jail at this minute uh, under the 1961 Suicide Act. Nobody, there have been successful prosecutions, but basically uh, there is nobody really suffering from, it, it, from taking a, a, the action which is merciful um, and it, in those particular circumstances, nobody's in jail at the minute. So we, we already, and, and in fact, in, the, in what Kerr Starmer set out, uh, it's even more clear that there shouldn't be prosecutions in those particular uh, circumstances. I do think it has to be tested in law because I think there are situations where people will kill. And there is one situation where a woman pleaded that she was doing a mercy killing and she is now in jail for killing her son. Uh, who she's, whom she smothered with a, with a pillow. So I think the law has to remain as it does today, otherwise we will get these kind of abuses. Uh, I'll come back to the other questions later. Thank you. Catherine, are you, are you as comfortable with that grey area as Kevin seems to be? Um, I would like to pick up on three Please. very excellent questions asked. One, very briefly, one around Oregon, one around extension, and one around pain of family. Um, they were all very good questions. So in terms of Oregon, um, we're often told to look to Oregon where there is no evidence of abuse or harm. But in my view, Oregon simply doesn't collect the sort of information we would require in order to determine that. So do you know that all information on assisted deaths in Oregon comes from a form filled out by the doctor who wrote the lethal prescription after the patient's death? There is no independent verification. Um, what, there is no information on people who requested an assisted death but had that request turned down. These facts seriously limit any conclusions we can draw about the safety of the Oregon law. Last year, one physician wrote 31 lethal prescriptions and therefore contributed 31 sets of safety monitoring information. Um, Richard said most families don't want their relative to have assisted dying. I completely agree, but the, the, the word that's doing a lot of heavy lifting in that sentence is most. We're not talking about most, we're talking about the, the, the small number where there might have been problems that we should be aware of. And I just think we don't have the information or the systems currently to know. Very briefly around extension, um, would we support extension to people with dementia? And, and if not, why not? I mean, in a funny way, and you might be um, surprised to hear me say this, I think I would be more supportive of a proposed law that said, do you know what, this is for everyone. We're not going to define suffering in some arbitrary way. It's whatever the patient thinks it is. Because I do not see how a law that rests on an arbitrary foundation can be a safe one. I think that is an intrinsically unsafe law. Um, for everyone or for no one, I think is probably a better position. And last, to the question around the pain of a family, um, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a palliative care doctor. I have sat with many, many families in, in anguish and pain because their loved one is dying but, and they have physical symptoms or they don't have physical symptoms. They're, they're refusing food or they're not refusing food. Death and dying is intrinsically a situation associated with pain, and I know we all know that. But I don't think we should underestimate the pain associated with um, facilitating a family member to have an assisted death. And I think we often forget about that, but I think that there is a real burden there for those left behind too that we probably need to add into the mix. 
Thank you. So I'm coming back out. Uh, thank you. My name is Dr. Shibli Rahman, and I'm more confused than ever about this <laughs> subject. So thank you very much to the panel. Uh, you totally confused me. I'd like to invite the panel members, if they want to, to consider two medical legal rabbit holes of mine. As a clinician, and you don't have to answer this, who is the duty of care with if somebody, if the, I'll assume the law is approved, who is the duty of care with to the person deciding to do the dying? I ask this because the breach of the duty of care will be negligence. So can the panel think is intuitively right to breach a duty of care where you fail to kill somebody? And my second question is, if you want to, uh, is there any duty of confidentiality if a patient suddenly dies out of the blue? Is regulator allowed to sanction a doctor for breaching confidentiality? Thank you. And then the gentleman who has the microphone here, while we move that mic to the person on your, your right corner. Yeah. Yeah. And does this work? Yes, it does. Um, Firstly, I would say that the issue needs to shift from a focus on assisted dying to enhancing quality of choices at the end of life. In that context, I would say that currently I'm from Scotland, assisted dying is not illegal. We brought a court case to test this. Um, the judge said it is perfectly legal to drive somebody to the fourth road bridge so long as he doesn't actually push him over the edge. So you've got this case where actually suicide is not illegal. What is illegal is actually performing the final act. However, if you drive your friend to the fourth road bridge and he jumps over, then you are immediately sat upon by a plethora of police who come round demanding to know, have you got any hidden interest in helping him to jump over the fourth road bridge? So there's a whole, if you go towards the end of, uh, end of life choices, where I would advocate what I really want is a pill in my wardrobe that I can take when I want. But even if you go that route, you have not protected all sorts of other people from inquisitions into reasons why I might have decided to take a pill that I happen to have had in my wardrobe. And at the moment, um, it's just made the, the, the legal situation makes it extremely difficult to get a, a collection of drugs in your wardrobe. And actually, uh, assisted dying, uh, dignity in dying was previously called exit, was previously called voluntary euthanasia society, and I've been a member of it since then. The Scottish version of Exit produced a book called Departing Drugs, in which it did list these connect, uh, collections of drugs. Yeah. I don't know why they're not pursuing them anymore, but they're very much pursuing a whole book on five last acts, where it goes into the multiple activities that you need to undertake to protect your family from inquisitions and so on and so forth. 
and it's a very interesting, I've grown and grown into a huge book. Anyway, thank you. Thank you. Um, the gentleman with the mic up here, and then if we can move um, to the lady in the front. Yeah. Uh, yeah, okay, sorry. I'm very much opposed to the idea that polling of the general public should be used as a valid argument. And that's not, by the way, because I believe that the general public are uh, uncaring or ill-informed or in any way um, stupid. I, I think the problem with polling is that polling says that when approached by somebody with a clipboard in the street who probably is campaigning for assisted dying, um, this person has no background in that. It's a, a subject they probably never thought about before. It's completely out blue and they're completely backfooted by it. And they're probably likely to take the most amenable or caring answer. And that would be, without any background, without this debate that's going on here, probably in favour. Whereas voting goes, it takes part in a debate in society. The referendum, there was a full year of debate, right? And that's so why. And so I think if you had a poll of people in here, you would find that it was polarised. Hi, Kevin. Um, you mentioned something that you weren't opposed to an individual doctor making a decision. Yeah, at, at the start of your talk, you know, to help someone on their way. I think the, the Dignity and Dying can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think their view is that that is a very piecemeal solution, if that's the right word, in that it's open to individual whim. So Dr. Smith in Huddersfield is happy to uh, administer this and help you on your way, but Dr. Jones in London isn't. And uh, that doesn't help the person in London. I just want to add something into the conversation about Oregon. Um, I think that Oregon is not to be held up as a perfect example. Some of the uh, statistics that have come out um, officially are that 59% of patients dying under assisted suicide say it's because they felt they were a burden to others. And 7.4% say that because it was because the treatment was too expensive for them. Um, so nobody should be dying because they feel like they were a burden to others. We shouldn't be allowing people to feel like that in our society. So I just want to, to throw that into the mix about the conversation in Oregon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, for those in favour of assisted dying, can there, do you truly believe there can be dignity in death? Um, and does that matter for your argument? Um, and for those against, are you in favour, do you support DNRs? Um, or do you believe that life should be saved at all costs? Um, so often when people try and commit suicide themselves, um, it leads to a lot of suffering. Whereas assisted suicide, it's a way that people can die without suffering. And I think, I'm 16, I'm still quite young, but I've met quite a few people, not a lot, but you know enough that it's alarming, that have tried to kill themselves over and over again and it's causing so much suffering. So how as a society today do we think it's acceptable to let people suffer when they can safely die when they want to with somebody so they are not in pain anymore, whether it's physical or emotional? Yeah, I, I, just to, in response to the comment there, I guess because life is so precious. You know, the, you know, the comments that we've had from other people show that life is precious and people really value life. You know, when, when you lose a grandparent or you see a grandparent who's, in, uh, who's got dementia, then, you know, clearly that's... that's quite upsetting and life life is that precious i think you know the um i think it's you know david said that the the polling shows that this is what the public wants you know um and, and what have you but i think i'm fairly comfortable with the law as it is at the moment you know i'm fairly comfortable with the idea that if you 
drive someone to the fourth bridge, you know, and then they, they jump or they roll off or whatever, I'm actually quite comfortable if the police come around and say, what the hell were you doing? You know, and kind of and, and asking into that and inquiring about exactly what that situation is. Someone said about what happens if you have Dr. Smith or you have Dr. Jones or, or whatever, or what have you. Well, I mean, there's been test cases of that. You know, Dr. Moore in 1999 was, um, you know, was taken to court and, and accused of helping. Because one of the things he said was, I have helped patients to die a pain-free death. Um, and because of that, and because of other comments that he made, and also comments that were uh, attributed to him, but he actually denied that he said them, um, then he was taken to court and prosecuted for, for helping uh, people to die. And he was found not guilty. Um, and uh, I was on the jury, actually, which is why I kind of know the case at the time. Um, and he was found not guilty because there was no evidence, you know, that he helped people, that, that it was about euthanasia, you know, and I think the law in that, you know, although I thought the case was pretty, obviously I thought the case was entirely wrong, but the jury, you know, saw fit, you know, to acquit that individual, you know, of that case. But, you know, when, when there are accusations, because there were accusations about, about him, you know, taking people's lives, then it's quite right that, the, that those are investigated and prosecuted, and in that case was found wanting. So I think I'm fairly comfortable with the law as it stands, and in spite of the fact that you know uh, that it may be the case that yeah, polling, shows one, polling shows one thing, one thing or another, I think you need a hell of a lot more than that, you know, just to introduce you know a particular piece of legislation. Thank you. Um, can I start this time, Catherine? Yeah. Do you want to kick us off, and I'll work this way down Some the panel. Some more brilliant, brilliant questions, and I'm going to pick up on two things: um, polling and the very, very relevant question around do not attempt cardiopulmonary resuscitation. So, polling. I think the the people who've mentioned this are absolutely right. So we hear the statistic, oh, the vast majority of the public want it, 84%, duh, duh, duh. But actually what we know is that when you give the public more information, actually support drops significantly. And there was one poll from a few years ago that found that something like 42, 43% of people who initially said, yes, I support this, subs those same people subsequently changed their minds simply when some of the arguments against assisted dying were highlighted to them. Second, we know that public understanding of what assisted dying is and what it isn't is actually not that good. There was a, there was a very striking poll published this year that found that, so first of all, they asked the public, do you support assisted dying, yes or no? And a large majority, I think, said yes. And then they said, see these three options, which of these actually is assisted dying? More than 50% of the respondents got it wrong. 10% said it's hospice care. And um, 42% said it's being able to not have potentially life-prolonging treatment. Fewer than half actually said, yes, it's this thing where people with less than six months to live, dot, dot, dot. So actually, we totally need to listen to the public's opinion, but we need to explore it with a lot more nuance and depth than, than the kind of standing outside Tesco with a clipboard. Yep. I completely agree. Second thing, around the DNA CPR. As a palliative care doctor, the bread and butter of my job is talking to my patients about their wishes, their hopes, their values, <coughs> their anxieties, their fears, and helping them make informed decisions about what's right for them, weighing up the pros and cons of various different scenarios. Um, it can be really complex navigating these conversations because people's preferences change and their <coughs> circumstances change, and it's a series of conversations, not a one-off. But in my job, many, 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 in fact, most of these conversations actually lead to a decision where we decide together that they don't want to go to ICU and they don't want cardiopulmonary resuscitation and they don't even want antibiotics. And sometimes they don't even want to be in hospital, they want to go home. And I absolutely support that. That's choice and control. That's part of good care and that's already legal. Yeah. 
Thank you. Kevin? Um, just on the individual situation issue, which I think is interesting, I think right now the problem is the more you formalize this situation, the more doctors are going to balk at the idea of doing this. The more you shine a legal spotlight onto the deathbed scene, the more attention is going to be actually focused and therefore doctors are going to be very, very worried about it. Whereas in the past, they were not worried about it as much as, as they are today. And I think this is one of the problems with this whole discussion. And if we legalize it, there are going to have to be forms filled out um, or, or doctors will face five years in prison. So that's going to make their, their choices. I would rather have a doctor who is able to, who I trusted and who was able to do the right thing in that particular situation. So that's my response uh, to, to that. Just at the, a very important question at the back about, about suicide, shouldn't we make it easier? I think no, we, we really need to oppose suicide as a society. I think most suicide attempts are cries for help. That's what the 93 to 95% uh, that I quoted was about. Uh, they don't go on to, to take their own lives because basically they're saying something with that particular attempt. Whereas anybody who's a very determined suicide will find a way to do it and will find a way to do it whereby nobody else is able to uh, get involved. So therefore, I think when we see somebody who is in attempting a suicide, we should always interfere on the basis that they want to, they actually want to live. And uh, we should protect people against uh, both homicide and suicide in our society. Thank you. Richard. Thanks. If I could just deal the, the briefly with the issue of suicide again. I don't disagree with Kevin that if we see somebody trying to jump off a bridge, we need to act. Of course we must. And that's the whole point I've made the last time I spoke, is that suicide is a different issue from this situation we're talking about here, where people are making an informed decision in a completely different set of circumstances. Suicide is a tragedy, and everything we can do in our society to reduce it should be done. But what do we do with those who are dying and are suffering unendurably. And Catherine, with great respect, I think sidestepped that in her last answer, because yes, it's important to get people home if they want to be at home. Yes, it's important to talk through what their options are. But what if they want to end their life prematurely? And as a palliative care physician, I dealt with that for all of my career. The only answer that I had was we will go on doing everything we can to make it more comfortable. And I will stay with you throughout that, however painful it is for all of us concerned. And believe me, there were times when it was painful for me. And I went home and I wept because it isn't easy being with people who are dying. But the question we come back to time and time and time again, and why I as a retired doctor now and why as a, as a doctor I supported assisted dying, is what do we do about the people who are suffering unendurably now. And I want to say briefly, if I may, something about finally, yeah. existential suffering. A question about Oregon. We need to be very careful that we don't say this person's suffering is less than this person's because that has more physical or that has less ex existential suffering in it. My experience of this kind of suffering 
is that it is always a combination of all of those, physical, social, mental, and existential. Different for different people in different quantities, but you can't separate out. And when, 15 years ago, I had a very severe malignancy and thought I was going to die. And feeling a burden was a real problem. And I don't think we must just dismiss it as, oh, well, they said they felt a burden, and of course they shouldn't. Yeah, thank you, Richard. David? Yeah, I think I'd like to, to build on some of the things uh, that Catherine was saying around the polling. So I, th I think it, she cited two, two polls that haven't been cited yet. And so uh, I'll start with the second one, actually, which was um, Servation poll came out recently, and that was commissioned by um, the, the Dying Well or Party Group, which is a group that really exists just to oppose assisted dying. Um, I was surprised, Catherine, that you had a figure for the first question, because when that polling was put in the public domain, they never published the figures for the first question on public support. So if I could ask you a favour, it would be to, to talk to that group and to get them to publish the full data tables, that would be helpful. Breaking news at the Battle of Ideas. Because I think the first question is important context, because that's what the, the respondents heard first. Uh, and then I would uh, slightly challenge, I think, the conclusion from that poll being that the public don't know about assisted dying and what's going on. Yeah. So, well, first of all, 42% got the answer right from my point of view of, of what I say assisted dying is. And then another 42% said, oh, it's about refusing treatment that will bring about your death. Well, maybe these people aren't confused. Maybe they, they see these two things as ethically equivalent. And in fact, Dignity in Dying has done polling, the same set of polling that I mentioned earlier, that suggests that. We asked people if there was an ethical difference between assisted dying and refusing treatment that brought about your death. And 37%, similar number, said no, they're ethically equivalent. And 25% said assisted dying was more ethical than refusing treatment to bring about your death. So I think it's a little bit more nuanced than that. On the first poll cited, I think, I think there's some missing context. You presented that very neutrally, but I don't think it's a very neutral poll. Um, firstly, it was commissioned by Christian Action Research Education. You know, they've got skin in the game, let's be clear. The polarised debate is back. As has dignity in dying. Yeah, and, uh, and, the, uh, and the arguments, Wait, and the arguments they put into that, that poll were just one side of the debate, the, the Christian opposition arguments. We re-ran that poll with both sets of arguments, with the Christian Action Research Education arguments and Dignity in Dying's arguments side by side and got, once again, a huge majority in support. You might not like polling, but it's pretty clear what the public think. Sorry, can I just say that... I'm going to come back to the audience because we don't have a huge amount of time left and I'm going to try and get through as many contributions as we can. We're going to come back to our panel for their final kind of some summary points and they're not going to have a huge amount of time to deal with all of the issues that have come up but I, I do want to come back out to you as a gentleman whose hand went straight up here. So I can't remember your name, the guy in the grey jacket but I think it's very important to, assu to assume the good faith of everybody taking part in this and that it really is the case that, um, uh, that uh, as somebody shouted out, you too have skin in the game. It's um, you know that uh, people are emotionally involved in this and, and are taking a particular view of something yeah, as long as it's clear who's doing what, I think that's fine. Yeah, thank you. And uh, the next person with the mic while we bring this mic down here. Yeah, thanks very much. A fascinating debate. And this debate will run and run and because the arguments on both sides are genuinely powerful. I think that both sides know perfectly well, more or less, what the other side says. But other things uh, tend, to, tend to tip the balance. But what I want to emphasise is really uh, the, what I think Richard emphasised about ten minutes ago which is that if you don't have any legal provision for genuinely voluntary, properly regulated, assisted suicide, and yes, Kevin, I agree, we should call it that, yeah, uh, and, and no, no bone there, 
um, then you are, in fact, however good palliative care is, which it genuinely is uh, for many kinds of terminal illness, I mean, especially cancer, um, you are abandoning to a pretty dreadful fate a small number of people, for example, those suffering from neurodegenerative conditions that palliative care is, le can, is less good at treating, to a really awful, uh, you know, dying days full of fear and pain and dread. And the real question, I think, for those who oppose assisted suicides being legalized, have to ask, can you make that sacrifice? Are you prepared to sacrifice even just one person to that sort of fate? Which brings me to Kevin's point about it being suicide. And yes, I agree, it is that. I mean, what I think is being mounted here is a slippery slope argument of either a logical kind or maybe a sort of empirical kind, I'm not sure which, that says, okay, if you believe in uh, relaxing the law on assisted suicide in these extreme cases, then you are logically committed to relaxing it in the case of the love lawn 24-year-old who wants to end their life, or you're going to end up doing that. Well, I can't quite believe that. These are two actually very different sorts of case. I don't see why the law is logically um, required to legislate in the case of the, the lovelorn lover, just because the law, for particular reasons to do with end-of-life torment, relaxes itself on yep. the question of it. Uh, so that's really the point here. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I think we've all become more increasingly aware of the institutionalized racism and inequality that's been running through the NHS and the other systems that govern our society. And so as someone who's not like an expert on this topic, I'm curious to know, does the issues with safeguarding and abuse within assisted dying and other issues, do they disproportionately affect marginalized groups? And I think this should be an important point to bring up in this debate because the reality is we are not all equal in the society currently. And if issues like this are, you know, taking care of something as um, serious as dying, I feel like this should be brought up more. If any of you have any insight on that, I'd be curious to hear it. Thank you. Thank you. Do you have the mic? Yeah. Yes. Hello. So um, I'm a GP and I've been a GP for 18 years and I specialise in palliative care within my practice. And I suppose I would just like to pick up on one point that I think there is a variation in the access to palliative care for patients. So certain patients do get very good palliative care and other patients don't. And I would say that that's typically elderly care with no overriding diagnosis. So I think we need to look at that in the whole. And the second thing is this sort of insinuation that doctors make their own decisions on assisting patients to die and make that decision individually. That doesn't happen in the UK. That's illegal. So no doctor will, will ever administer a drug to kill somebody. That's just not true. Well, I just wanted to... We haven't really talked about the involvement of family because sometimes people talk about a safeguard of having a family do it be a signatory of saying this person is of sound mind, this person, you know, is um, doesn't have a good quality of life. Um, and I mean, in the, in the past few years, there's actually been people um, convicted and going to prison. You know, there was that girl who would, was sending texts to her boyfriend, and the boyfriend committed suicide. Um, and so I, I feel like it's naive to assume that there won't be certain people who will, you know, um, who will kind of continue talking to their elderly relative about how, what a burden they are or, you know, or what have you, even though they might have a good quality of life with their nurses. You know, I mean, I know that, you know, um, when I was in hospital, I was friends with nurses and so saying, oh, she's really isolated from friends, family or whatever. Um, there's, I, I, I just wanted to kind of bring up the topic of whether um, having family be a safeguard 
and safeguarding from families and involving families in the decision could yeah. ever be wise. Thank you. Um, so I'm a bit nervous and I'm not sure how to like correctly word my question. Um, but I was um, just thinking if um, assisted dying or suicide, whichever, I don't know, term will um, come into action, if, if, uh, if it becomes legalised, then won't the, just the general population um, have like sort of a, uh, like view suicide not that, no, like not that big of an issue or, or something, and then if they see doctors doing it and on like a daily basis, wouldn't that increase general suicide rates because they would think that it's it's legal, it's it's normal, it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Thank you very much. Okay, the final contribution from here, and I've been very unfair to our panel. I'm going to give them a very brief amount of time to sum up. Thank you, Catherine, for answering our question. So it seems like in terms of recording abuse, not only is it not really properly recorded, uh, the way it's done, well, if you look in the dictionary for conflict of interest uh, and look at examples, you'll probably find it there. Um, and I just want to, um, Richard, earlier you said, asked me if I'm making the assertion that uh, a relative or a doctor who uh, sees abuse uh, wouldn't uh, raise it and complain about it. Um, yes, I am making that assertion because unfortunately a lot of the time uh, they are uh, the source of these sorts of abuses. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Um, I really mean it. I should apologise to our panel because I haven't <laughs> given you very long to sum up at all. Probably a, just over a minute each. Richard, I know you were pretty keen to, to add something. Would you like to, to kick, us, kick off our summations first? I've got too many things to say in a minute. Mm. Pick so one. I'm, I'm going to pick one. And that is about this whole question of pressurisation of people and are we naive um, to think that it isn't happening? Thank you for those points. They're very important. But I think the answer that we have to come back to is I tried to make the point that I accept that nothing is watertight. We can't make the system completely watertight. We have to make it as safeguarded as we can. And I fully take Catherine's point that which she made earlier, that we have to be sure that we are not allowing anybody to slip through the net but I don't think we will ever have a net that is that tight however my argument would be how many potential people will slip through the net are we going to worry about compared to how many actual people dying today are suffering unbearably while they die thank you if you talk about 2,000 a year that's six a day three have died this morning and three this afternoon in unbearable suffering. Thank you very much, Richard. Um, David, if I could ask you to go next. Yeah, I'll try to sum up. I also try to cover off some of those questions. So someone talked about marginalised groups. So thank you very much for raising that. I actually think that the current law on assisted dying and assisted suicide is, is creating a situation where we are discriminating against marginalised groups. Because if you look at the people who are able to get assisted dying now outside the law, the main way that they're doing that successfully is travelling to Switzerland uh, for assistance to die. And the people that do that almost uniformly are well off white middle class people who have got the ability to organise, to plan and to navigate that difficult and painful journey. So I would argue it would be a more equal system post law change. Um, someone talked about uh, suicide 
and you know the effects of, of changing the law. So I'm going to actually quote from a, a doctor called James Downar, who uh, who works in Canada as a, a palliative care specialist, and he was asked about um, that issue of assisted dying versus assisted suicide, and he said suicide versus terminally ill patients accessing assisted dying, that you need to spend time with these patients. The two groups bear little resemblance to one another in terms of demographics, clinical circumstances, or circumstances of the event. This doesn't answer moral questions about rightness or wrongness, but they are definitely not the same thing. Thank you very much. Kevin. They are the same thing, is what I'm arguing. Um, and I think in terms of Piers' question about uh, the, the very different 24-year-old uh, versus uh, the 86-year-old you know, who doesn't value their life and is dying of a, of a disease, in some ways, yes, you can say that those are very different situations, but in terms of judging, um, how can you say that unbearable suffering, which is the justification for this, is w it's something different in one than the other. How can you go to the 24-year-old and say, you are not suffering unbearably? And this is the situation that they've faced in Belgium, where euthanasia has been legal now for nearly 20 years. And so therefore, they are giving more and more uh, euthanasia and assisted suicides to those who are actually euthanasias only in Belgium, but in the Netherlands, where it's also been legal for about that period of time. They're giving euthanasia and assisted suicide to people who are mentally ill uh, but suffer from no disease because basically they have no comeback to the argument of uh, I am suffering unbearably. Uh, and I think it's wrong to say that suicides are all impetuous acts. Sometimes they are planned in advance and we would still try and prevent those things. And, and, and I think it's, it's wrong to assume that there's a really different basis to both of these things. One other thing, Sorry, family, family, family. Um, it's, it's an interesting case from Belgium, a guy called Tom Mortier, who came home one day and received a text from a doctor saying that his mother had had a euthanasia and it, she was in her 50s. Uh, one of the problems is that, of course, you cannot, you cannot, because it's medicalized, you can't give all of the records to all of the families. And this is never going to involve the families fully because you have priv privacy. And this is the case of Tom Mortier. It's still going through the courts. Read about it in the New York Review of Books, uh, if you can. Catherine, you have the final word for today. OK, thank you. So um, to pick off a couple of things to the lady in red, I agree with you. I think this represents a massive shift for all of society that we must not underestimate. There is some data to show that in jurisdictions where assisted dying has been legalised, that the rate of non-assisted suicide has gone up. We need to explore that more. We need a firmer answer to that question. In terms of um, institutional racism, I, I don't think we have enough data on the impact of assisted dying on that. But what I can tell you is that people from ethnic minority groups are already disadvantaged when it comes to hospice and palliative care. If we legalize assisted dying for everyone without ensuring that everyone has access to good palliative care, does that not send a very, very dangerous message to people living with terminal illness? And my sum up point, which I think picks off a load of questions and is really the kind of theme for me of the, of the session, is that we have to acknowledge that if we make assisted dying legal, there will be risks and unintended and maybe unforeseen harms. The law may simply trade off one set of vulnerable people for another set. And at its most extreme, this means that someone who doesn't want to die ends up being dead. The risk of inappropriate death is the most serious risk and must therefore be at the forefront of this debate. Thank you. Can we please thank all of our speakers?
I said at the start that um, you know, it's very important that the public take ownership of these issues, and I, I think we've thoroughly proved that here today. Um, the debate, of course, continues as it's not Thanks again for listening to the Battlefest podcast. You can support us by subscribing, sharing and leaving us a review. Check back next week for more recordings from the Battle of Ideas Festival 2021.